Hello, and welcome to the Trauma and Mental Health Reports podcast series. We aim to share stories and knowledge on topics related to trauma and mental health with the community. My name is Fatima Jahan, and I'd like to welcome our guest for today's episode, Dr. Pat Ogden, who's a psychotherapist and the renowned innovator of somatic psychology and is the leading expert in working through the body to resolve trauma. Today, we'll be discussing the physical impact of trauma on our bodies. Let's get into today's conversation. Hi, Dr. Ogden. Thank you so much for um, joining us today. It's an honor to have you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So, Dr. Ogden, um, you founded the Sensory Motor Psychotherapy in 1981. Can you tell us a bit more about what sensory motor psychotherapy is and how is it different from talk therapy so our audience can get a little understanding of what that is? Okay. Well, sensory motor psychotherapy is kind of founded on the idea that the movement and posture and expression of our bodies reflects past trauma, um, our attachment history, as well as our competencies and our resources. So we can really use the body to help people change and heal and address the issues that they want to work with. Um, So for example, if if somebody's uh, you know, shoulders are tense and hiked up um, and they're, they feel a lot of fear in their lives, which many trauma survivors do. Um, we work with that fear also through the body to help the body uh, relax those shoulders, take a fuller breath, you know, kind of regulate uh, through a different action, a different way of living in the body. Okay, so would you say that it also depends how severe the traumatic experience is and like that might come out differently and how um, our body reacts to it? So maybe more severe, tra- a more severe traumatic experience might display differently in the body than um, a less severe one. That's an interesting question. It's so highly individual. Uh, mm-hmm. We all, we all, we, all our bodies are so different. We have very different ways that we move and live in our bodies, very different neuroregulatory capacities. Um, so, of course, uh, if trauma is severe, prolonged, more intense, uh, especially if it occurs at a vulnerable developmental time. Uh, it's going to have a, a potent impact on the nervous system and the body for sure. Yeah. Okay. I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about like how this started and what got you interested um, in the work and how the body carries trauma. One of the main things that got me interested was working in a psychiatric hospital in the 1970s and I was teaching yoga and dance. Um, And nobody back then was talking about the body and trauma or the body and mental health. Um, But what I noticed was that the patients who did both the yoga and the dance classes seemed to get better. And that really piqued my interest in how the, the body itself and its movement and how we use our bodies might impact psychological health. Um, you know, and later I, kind of, I, I came to understand that those yoga classes, they were very slow and gentle, uh, 
patients could come and go as they pleased. They could stop whenever they wanted. They had a lot of control. Um, and it, it was really accessing the parasympathetic dorsal vagal nervous system that kind of slows everything down, but without the, the fear and that uh, immobile, immobility that happens in trauma when you can't defend and protect yourself. And then the dance classes were very fast and quick paced. Mm -hmm. Back then we did a lot of line dances. And, and uh, again, patients could come and go, they could participate however they wanted. So it was safe for them to get their sympathetic system aroused uh, without, without fear. So I think that really helped re-regulate their nervous systems. Um, and most of our patients had had some degree of trauma. Um, so wow. I think that's why they got better. So that really got me interested. And then the other thing that really got me interested was that I was a, um, an adjunct therapist for the counseling center here at the University of Colorado. Also, it was in the later 70s with women who uh, um, were having difficulty enjoying sex. And mm -hmm. I hadn't learned anything really about trauma back then and about making sure that patients stay within their window of tolerance. Um, so I was doing a lot of emotional work and memory work and they weren't really getting better. And mm -hmm. I was so confused. And so I remember saying to my colleague, well, I'm just gonna try to slow things down, help them stay in their bodies uh, and see if that helps. And it really did. And then later, you know, I learned that when you go back for a trauma survivor and revisit traumatic memories without paying attention to the window of tolerance, you know, within which they can process information if there are arousals within that window, then it, it can actually be re-traumatizing. So that was a huge lesson for me. I learned a lot from those, those clients. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, now I'm curious. So the clients, uh, you were saying that the women who weren't enjoying sex, is it because their, their traumatic experience is related to maybe like some sexual abuse or does it not matter? It was just a traumatic experience that kind of um, is impacting their um, sexual life. Well, for these women, they'd all, they had all had sexual abuse. Yeah. Okay. And nobody really had clarified how to work with sexual abuse back then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, um, you know, one of our defenses in the face of threat and trauma is to just shut down and go numb. And that's mm -hmm. what was happening to these, these women. They couldn't feel anything uh, because sexual contact reminded them implicitly or explicitly of their sexual abuse and they just shut down. Uh, so we were able to work with that in a more effective way once I really started working with their bodies and mm -hmm. uh, helping them find again those instinctive capacities to defend and push away and just to have that uh, capacity vitalized and brought to life again in their bodies. Wow, that's interesting. And would there be times where maybe like their partner is also involved in that part of therapy or is it just kind of focusing on the client and how they're able to kind of come back and um, focus on their body and the response? Well, I, I mean, I think it's both. I think mm -hmm. uh, uh, for a traumatized client, 
in this case, sexual abuse survivors, they needed to uh, be able to get more flexibility in their in in instinctive defensive responses. So they just didn't go to shutdown. And, you know, if somebody has had trauma so that you can't fight back and you can't get away, you can't cry for help, which most children can't do any of those things, um, then your only choice choices are to, to, sh to become immobilized and to shut down. And so you lose that flexibility of all those defensive responses, you know? And so um, having the bodily felt sense of being able to protect yourself by pushing away or fighting or getting away uh, makes relationships safe and makes sex can make sex safe for so many people who've, who've who've lost that capacity because it didn't work in childhood. But but you know, sensory motor psychotherapy is very effective with couples uh, as well. So often, yeah, we work with couples and work with how couples interact in that kind of body-to-body -body communication mm -hmm. that has so much meaning, but the meaning's often under the radar. They're not often not conscious of it, but um, they're still reacting from that, from making meaning of their partners, of their partner's body language. So it's very interesting to work with couples. Yeah. Yeah. Couples yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. And um, now I, that got me thinking in your book, The Trauma uh, Trauma and the Body, which is a phenomenal book, by the way, I suggest our listeners um, give it a read. You talk about attachment style and how understanding its physical tendencies can also help in uh, somatic interventions. Can you talk a little bit about it and explain how attachment is important in sensory motor therapy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, our early relationships, the people with the people who you know care for us and that we depend on as children and all, I think of those relationships that they really uh, uh, impact our our bodies in a very physical way. So if I grow up with a caregiver who doesn't want me to express myself and who wants me to kind of be quiet and be obedient, my body might start to pull in to hold those impulses in in order to fit into that family and, and win the approval and acceptance of the person that I depend on, right? And if, if that endures over time, that will, that will become a chronic pattern. Um, and then the pattern feeds that issue because when your body's pulled in like this, your body's basically saying, don't express, don't express. So even if you're later in, in a relationship with somebody who really wants you to express, your body's still saying, don't do it. So we would work with uh, you know, helping a person loosen up that pattern and feel the, you know, the emotional pain of not having been able to express with their attachment figures and uh, help shift that physical pattern. Because however we live in our bodies, you know, supports our beliefs that we've learned in our attachment relationships. Yeah, and because none of no parent or caregiver is perfect, there's always parts of our children that that we didn't welcome, even I mean, unconsciously. You know, it's just part of our own family script. So then we pass it on. So working with the body can really help shift those procedural patterns that sustain those those family scripts. Yeah, 
the, the topic of attachment is so important and how the past has come to shape, you know, who we are um, uh -huh. as adults and how we communicate with others. Um, there's also concepts that like many professionals and therapists are talking about and it's that memories are stored in your body, like whether it's specific memory or trauma. I'm just wondering um, if you can expand on what that means from your perspective. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, we, as humans, we develop patterns uh, of emotional patterns, the way we think, thinking patterns. We also develop patterns in our bodies. So um, I, I don't think of it as specific memories, you know, but I, I do think of uh, that we have we have themes and patterns of response. So, for example, if I'm working with, uh, um, say, Vietnam uh, or Vietnam or an Afghan vet who was had combat trauma, um, and they're remembering the combat, and they're starting to to tense up and not being able to breathe, right? Uh, that that memory has accessed a pattern of response that they have to trauma. But it's, the memory itself isn't per se stored in the body, but it, it, remembering it can stimulate patterns that started long before the combat, you know? So, um, and like in the example I gave of, of if a child's pulled in because their expression isn't welcomed, well, we could say the, the whole memory of that childhood is stored in the body and in that pattern that says, don't express yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what, what talk therapy misses is that you can work with insight, you know, and say it's safe to express yourself now. And, you know, your partner really wants your expression, you're in a safe environment. But if the body is still pulling in, the body's still gonna be giving you a different message. So that's why I think it's so important to not just work with the mind, but also with shifting the patterns that hold those, those beliefs in place. Mm -hmm. And this has me kind of thinking also about like anxiety and panic attacks, which many adults experience. Um, so when someone's having a panic attack, they experience various somatic symptoms like sweating, dizziness, muscle aches. Um, or when someone's feeling anxious, they may have what we call like an anxious stomach due to the brain gut connection. I was wondering if these symptoms may also play a role in the body's trauma response. And if you see that often with your clients. Well, yeah, they can because, um, you know, when, when trauma happens, our, our physiological arousal goes outside of our window of tolerance. It can really escalate into very high sympathetic arousal that mobilizes us to take action, you know? But that arousal often doesn't come down. I mean, people who study animals talk about, you know, in the animal kingdom, when the arousal goes up, you, you run away from the bear, the mountain lion that's chasing you, and you use up all those catecholamines that are stimulated by your sympathetic system. But as humans, we, we don't, usually do that, you know, we have a, even a car accident can really stimulate our sympathetic nervous system, but we don't metabolize all those chemicals. So, and that, that can lead to chronic like hyperarousal and anxiety and panic attacks and so forth. And the other thing is, is that, you know, um, 
many people's trauma continues. Like if uh, we're not just working with childhood trauma, if, if you're a marginalized person, um, African-American or LGBTQ or Asian, as we've seen all this in the news so much, you know, you mm -hmm. live in a constant uh, threatening environment. So the trauma isn't over. Yeah. So that com is, complexifies uh, the issue, of course. It requires more than psychotherapy to heal. It's going to require some real action with yeah. social justice. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. Um, so also in one of your talks, you mentioned a client story of a 13-year-old girl who was withdrawn and didn't talk much at school, but her posture seemed to be telling a lot. I find this particular story very interesting because you had to kind of go back and work with the eight-year-old um, child who was bullied, but your client was in fact 13 years old. Can you tell us more about the story and how you worked with that client to kind of release anxiety? Sure. Uh, yeah, well, this, this client um, had been referred to me because there had been a suicide at her school and the, her, the counselor was afraid that she would be the next suicide. So she was at high risk in my mind. My first agenda was let's keep this girl safe. So her posture, she was hunched over and her head was to one side and um, she was Latina uh, and she had experienced a lot of bullying um, and I'm sure a lot of other discrimination and uh, taunts, et cetera. Um, and she had lost her confidence and really felt bad about herself, which we could see in her posture, all hunched up, mm. and kind of hiding. You know, she used to have really gorgeous, long, thick, dark hair that fell over her face and she would kind of hide behind her hair and the school counselor asked her parents to cut her hair so that she wouldn't be able to hide, which was the worst thing to do. Yeah. So um, with some clients, I would just want to start helping them shift their posture so they'd feel better about themselves. But with an at-risk person like this girl, I was afraid that that would override the part of her that felt so bad. Um, and then, you know, I didn't want to override that part because I didn't want her to harm herself. So we went into that part. Uh, we explored those memories of when she was eight years old, like you said, and she had been taunted and laughed at mm -hmm. and all. And she cried and, and she was really able to, it was like working with a child who had an inner child because she was only 13. Yeah. She could work with this eight-year-old and I remember we did some experiments where we could talk to the eight-year-old and say, you know, it's okay, it's about you, don't worry about them. And, um, and then we could work with her posture. Um, mm -hmm. But it was interesting because when we did start to work with her posture, it made her very anxious uh, because, you know, there's, there's a reason for every symptom Mm -hmm. And every way a person lives in their body, there's a real reason for it. And this pulled in posture kept her safe. So to, uh, to work with her posture also meant that, I remember she, um, 
She said she felt really anxious in her stomach. So she placed her hands on her stomach to kind of soothe that anxiety. And then she was safe to bring her, mm -hmm. to her head aligned. And, uh, and that was kind of a big breakthrough for her. Uh, she could be more socially engaged. Uh, her voice actually changed. She really mumbled and I could hardly hear her at the beginning because all that was so tight. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, that, that was uh that was I think that session. Yeah. yeah, that that's a really unique uh story. Um now I'm just wondering if also you can give advice in terms of like, you know, you mentioned previously there are systemic barriers that many people are dealing with. Um, people from people are uh, racialized, there's the LGBTQ community, um, and in such a time, you know, we're still in the pandemic. Um, yeah. What can people do at home in terms of like paying attention to their body? And, and I know you talk a lot about mindfulness too um, in your book, kind of being mindful. And yeah. if you can also expand on like what you kind of mean by mindfulness um, and things that like some people can do at home when they're feeling anxious. Yeah. Well, in terms of at home, I mean, just being aware of your trick, what triggers you, um, mm -hmm. you know, like, uh, because with that awareness, if you, if you know what triggers you, like uh, this African American man that um, I was talking with, um, he's triggered by just seeing a cop car I mean, it makes total sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. And his arousal starts going up, his body gets tight. So noticing that and noticing his reaction in his body, like his energy moves up, his body gets tight. Noticing that reaction gives him uh, power because then he can choose if he wants to change that reaction. Because, you know, if you let your arousal stay high for a long period of time, it's really bad for your health. Compromises mm -hmm. your immune system. It kind of builds and builds so it can stay high longer and longer. So I try to work with, with marginalized populations who have these environmental triggers to, to, to be mindful of it, just be aware of what triggers you, what your body does, and then do something different. Uh, and for him, it was like, okay, I'm gonna relax my shoulders and I'm gonna take some deep breaths. And that just brings his arousal down. And then he notices that, okay, I feel better. I can feel my feet, you know, don't feel so anxious. And then I, I always say, if you can stay with that new, that positive feeling for, I mean, 30 seconds would be great. If you can stay with it for 30 seconds, uh, because that starts to change the neural networks in your brain. Um, so that would be, uh, you know, I, I think that's an effective uh, intervention that you can do yourself to deal with ongoing threat. Um, mm -hmm. And it's empowering because if you're not mindful, if you're not aware of your reaction, it's likely to, to stay there for a long period of time. And, you know, it takes 30 seconds to start to establish neural networks. So uh, you, you don't want to let yourself stay in that hyper aroused state. Or you might, somebody else could see a, a police car and shut down and start to feel mm -hmm. numb and not want to move. So for them, then they'd have to do something different, they'd have to do some movement or something active to get themselves out of that shutdown state. Huh? 
to maybe like going out for a walk or just like yeah. not maybe sitting on yeah yeah just just moving anything sampling mm -hmm. go for a walk you know just dance or whatever mm -hmm. just get some movement in your body to counter the immobilizing uh, responses okay that's, that's really helpful i'll definitely remember that next time um, but yeah thank you so much for your time dr ogden it's been a it's been a pleasure having you here um this concept is really fascinating yeah thank you so much for coming here on the trauma mental health report well you're welcome all the best thank you take care you've reached the end of this episode with the trauma and mental health report podcast thanks for joining us connect with us at trauma.blog.yourq.ca. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and newsletter to see our latest content. See you at the next episode.